Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 102 for the first third of March 2014. Today, I'm going to bring you the end of the discussion at the Launceston Skeptics in the Pub, which I gave you as part of episode 99, the Saga of the Lunar Ziggurat. After I gave my talk, there was about 45 minutes of discussion, questions, and answers, and I thought that I would share them with you in this episode. The puzzler from the last episode will be discussed in the next episode, provided that anyone actually responds. So one of the uh, most skeptics find is when we have a discussion with someone, what we should remember is to debate the topic and not the individual. Right. As soon as you start debating the individual, they'll, that's their first line of attack. They're not, uh, they're not addressing the topic, they'll address the individual making an incompetent attack. So I think, I, I think you've had that yes. a number of times. Very much so. so. I think that's one of the things we, when the term skeptic often gets a bad name or we're often seen as a debunker. We're not... I don't like the term debunker. It's not... Yeah, I, I felt kind of dirty using it twi- two or three times in this talk, but at some point, it's the easiest term to use. And, and I agree with you, and I think that it's... I mean, I, I think that it it's a bad name that skeptics... You know, people think that skeptics just don't believe in anything, and it's like, well, that's not true, or, or don't want to believe. Like, I would love... For there to be evidence of an afterlife, I would love for there to be an all-loving deity or whatever. I would love for there to be aliens. I'd love for there to be evidence of an ancient civilization on the moon. The problem for me... It's a loud motor. <laughs> that, that is not evidence of anything. Maybe just a coincidence. Uh, the problem for me is that it's just the evidence, and I think that that's what the skeptics do, is that we show that the evidence for these claims has not met the burden that it requires. There's the whole extraordinary claim to require extraordinary evidence. And to me, what that means is we have an inordinate amount of evidence that shows that there aren't spirits. And when you do these things that show that there are, there are clear flaws in the method. Like EVP is audio pareidolia, as opposed to visual pareidolia, and that kind of thing. Or hot and cold spots are, you have air currents, and you haven't ruled those out kind of thing. And... If you rule those out, if you get rid of those and have a controlled circumstance, the evidence goes away. And it's, well, then there isn't evidence. You know, there's just a belief. And it's like, again, I would... And that's, you know, if I ever happen to debate Mike, you know, I would say straight out, I would love for you to be right. But based on this evidence that you present, it's not good enough to show that you're right. And I think that that's another sort of... It make, if you approach it like that, I think it makes skepticism a little bit less um, dirty of a word. Yeah. If I can use, again, I'm finding that words in this country mean slightly different things. Like, so in America, for example, critical means very negative. So I have a shirt that says critical thinking. It's not just for smart people. And I was wearing it here, and people liked it. I'm like, yeah, people don't realize, you know, critical thinking is not just negative thinking about something, it is you are thinking about it in more detail than just a sound bite. Yep. And I think that that's the message that we should try to be promoting. 
And Stuart, are there other prominent lines of pseudo astronomy? I don't know if you think about Planet X. Yes. Are they still, are there yes. other lines still going? <laughs> yes. Uh, so I actually at this point have an eight-part series on the fake story of Planet X on my podcast because there are so many permutations on the idea that I keep finding new ways to address it. And for me to really... How can you tell us what Planet X is supposed oh, to yeah. be? Uh, well, it depends on who you talk to. I plant Planet X is supposed to be this planet uh, in the solar system that does stuff. And it's really hard to be more specific than that without saying, according to this person, it is this. According to that person, it's this. Uh, just to use an example, perhaps the best known is Zechariah Sitchin's ideas, uh, where Planet X is inhabited by the Anunnaki. The planet itself is called the uh, it's called Nibiru, and has an orbit of every 3,600 years. Uh, it comes really close to the sun. And, and the Anunnaki lived for tens or hundreds of thousands of years. They had a colony on Earth maybe 400,000 years ago, and they created humans out of the primate species on the planet in order to mine gold, to put into their atmosphere, to keep the heat in, I think. I mean, they sound a little bit like leprechauns, but you know, they, they want our gold kind of thing. But that's what Planet X is, according to Sitchin. And there, there was Nancy Leader was big in 2003. She thought that Planet X was going to swing by and do bad stuff, cause a pole shift where the geographic poles would flip and huge numbers of people would die and various other things. Um, Planet X was really big with the 2012 phenomenon because it was going to do fill-in-the-blank kind of thing. Um, so... Planet X is still, it's, it's had a lull because it was really big in the lead up to 2012, uh, this is at least December 21st, 2012. It's on a little bit of a lull, there are still people out there. I think whatever the next doomsday thing is, Planet X is going to play some role in it, in terms of claims wise. Um, so that's still big. Conspiracies on, you know, the moon hoax, the Apollo moon landings, or at least in the US, and, and the polls I saw for Britain, 20% think that the United States didn't land people on the moon. I uh, have no idea what it would be for Australia. Oh, it's very, very big here. Really? Well, not big, but it, it's very... Yeah, 10, 20% kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's educated people. People, colleagues that I work with are so wrapped up with ancient, ancient aliens as well. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, one of the doctors actually distributes videos around around and talk it's a regular sort of conversation yeah yeah um we also have uh so planet x or planet x is big ancient aliens is really big i don't really address ancient aliens as much because there's less astronomy more history and i don't have the history background to do a good job of it however I just put out the first part of what will be a two-part series on my podcast. I'm sorry, I keep I sound like a broken record. Um, with an interview by Michael Heiser. Michael Heiser, um, he does believe uh, the Bible is, um, I believe, literally true. Uh, but he is a big debunker, sorry to use the term, of the ancient aliens stuff, and especially <laughs> Zechariah Sitchin. Because Michael Heiser... Um, although he and I might disagree religiously, and of course I don't have the religious background to debate him, but he is an ancient texts scholar. So he actually can go and read these and say, well, no, that doesn't say that. And he's very big on interpret the text in the context of the t time, don't read it for the present day. So uh, in the first part of the two-part series I just put out yesterday of Ezekiel's Wheels Within Wheels, we talked about that example because people today, the ancient aliens crowd, love to say, well, that's a spaceship. 
he was talking about he's seeing a spaceship and Michael goes through and says, well, no, actually he had words for like silver, but he used a different term and he had words that in his vocabulary that would have described it better and he didn't use them. He was actually, if you look at the context of the writing, talking about, I think it was a throne and uh, cows and this other stuff. Uh, so if you're interested in that, um, there's that on my podcast. Um, <laughs> I, I think I also interviewed another guy in episode 18 about ancient aliens. Um, creationism, of course, in the United States is really big. Uh, and there are many uh, astronomy and geology less physics-based claims um, for creationism. And so I talked a lot, of, not a lot, I've done maybe a dozen episodes so far and many, many blog posts on young earth creationist claims dealing with astronomy, like uh, the changing speed of light. Is there evidence for light having changed? Because for cre- you have this problem of you either have a god who really wants to screw you around, like... He's going to create a universe that, for all intents and purposes, looks like it was created 13.7 or 8 billion years ago. But it was really 6,000 years ago because we have objects that are 13 plus billion light years away. And so unless God created the light in root to make it look old, or unless the speed of light has changed dramatically over the course of the universe's history, then the speed of light itself and these objects that we see clearly say the universe is older than 6,000 years. So I relatively recently did an episode on that and various other things. But I'd say in terms of main categories, um, in the U.S. at least, ancient aliens, UFO, all that entire category, and that's where Michael Horn comes in. Uh, not so much ancient aliens, but current aliens. Um, so that kind of stuff. Uh, creationism, uh, Planet X... And at least the stuff with 20... I, uh, I classified Planet X with 2012 stuff most of the time just because... Well, just because they were intertwined, at least in the mythology in the United States. Um, I don't know, is there... Other, well, then there's the Paul Moon Hoax and other you know, NASA-type conspiracies. Um, you guys don't have as much of a... Do you have any space program? That in no. commercial satellites, I guess. We had no streak in the 50s. Yeah, I, 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 which was a you know, light blue touch paper and retire immediately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We also had Skylab crash. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you've had spacecraft crash here. Yeah, we've got some debris. Yeah. I'm, sure, I'm, sure there, I'm sure there were conspiracies about that. And um, I hope that you enjoyed all that podcast thousands of lines of interaction because it's debatable whether that's productive or not. I've had that question before. Of what, why do you do this? It's never going to change their lives. And uh, it surprised me a bit when you said, why do they keep doing this? Um, it doesn't matter much. Um, most likely it's because of the money. Um, the bit about went quiet and then he yeah. sort of noisy again before his book. I mean, there's a lot of money involved. That's his livelihood. But who cares whether it's the money or this actual psychotic delusion going on? Um, you're not going to change their mind. And the, the point of having an expert response to these people, I think, I hope, is that the response can be brief. If it was the rest of us trying to respond, well, then the argument goes on forever. But to have someone who knows what they're talking about, just a few lines say, look, he's gone wrong here, here, and here, and then 
quite. Is that the best tactic? Unless, of course, you enjoy that. Uh, I, I get a little bit of thrill. I'd like to argue, um, and I can briefly answer it if you... So, um, there are a few reasons. I think, briefly, sort of the list is... Um, you learn. I think that you learn something new every time, and you can show something new. So, in the podcast, the reason why I have eight episodes on the fake story of Planet X is because each time there is a different, slightly different claim, and I can talk about a different aspect of astronomy and teach it that I hadn't taught before, I hadn't talked about before. And so there's that, and like I learned how to process the Selene image data when going through this. I hadn't done that before. Um, so there's a little bit of an education for me in that. It's also to hone your critical thinking skills. I mean, every time there's a claim, there's usually a different slight twist to it. And so, well, let's investigate that slight twist. And so you, I think you learn something new in the process there, and it helps hone those skills. And then for me as a scientist, I have to, it's really a publisher Paris type field where I have to convince other scientists that my work, especially if it shows that previous work is wrong, I have to prove it as close to prove as you can do outside of mathematics with a lot of evidence. And although it's not directly transferable, you typically don't get ad hominem attacks type things, the process of being able to dot your I's and cross your T's, if I can use an American phrase, I don't know if it's... so be, Being really nitpicky with all of those details um, and making sure all of those things where a reviewer could possibly say, oh, well, you didn't think of this, going through and reading it like that, I think being a skeptic and going through this kind of thing has made me a better scientist in that sense because I now couch a lot of my papers. I say, you know, as far as these data show, it's this. Or within the realm of this study, it's this. And when I review papers, I harp on that language. I just re-reviewed a paper three days ago, and I said, you've put in a lot of caveats, but you need more because it is only for these data that you did, and there are other data that show that this might not be right. So... You know, I'm not sure if your paper is worth publishing, but if you do, you have to, I insist that you put in these caveats. And it's, so for me as a scientist, I think that this kind of process and honing my critical thinking skills has helped. I'm not sure if it's as useful for someone who is, say, um, who's an engineer as much, but it it would probably be useful for, say, a doctor, because there's a lot of a lot of critical thinking as a doctor or a lawyer. I mean, being able to argue in court and anticipate where someone might try to spot a flaw in your logic. It's the exact same thing with this kind of stuff, this kind of back and forth. And while I never thought I would ever convince Hoagland or Barra of what I say, um, I think that the process itself has not only taught me, but taught other people who have read the blog and listened to the podcast. Okay. Um, I wanted to respond to that as well as ask you a question. Having lived a life as a more credulous individual uh, and having listened to Coast to Coast AM back when Art Bell used to host it, um, I can say from a a listener perspective, having an interest in a particular topic, even if you're not sceptical about that particular topic, and hearing a name come up time and time again like, oh, this awful... You know, Stuart guy, he's such a terrible person. But, it, you know, it, it's enough for some people who are sort of listening to that or interacting with that medium to want to find out what this is about because that's kind of what led me to skepticism as well, was sort of 
being made aware of the fact that there were counter-arguments and, you know, being like a, a die-hard believer in, in, in aliens visiting us and, and, and whatnot, um, I, I thought, you know, to shore up my own arguments, I should probably know what the counter-arguments were so that I could, you know, knock them over like so many little tenpins. And it was engaging with that that started to bring me, you know, around to the more sceptical point of view. Um, my question for you is, do you think this whole kind of uh, thing would have played out differently had Art Bell been still hosting the show instead of Yes, story? I do. Um, and I'm saying that again with a mind that this might get back to George. Um, I think that Art was uh, based on... Okay, again, I'm doing the skeptic. I'm bringing in the caveat. Based on pro- the F shows that I've listened to of arts and the shows and style that I've listened to with George, I think that art seemed to be much more willing to uh, critically question his guests and bring on the opposing because side. That was basically, what turned me off the show, you know, in time, um, was just that George Norrie seemed simply be giving people soapboxes to stand on, whereas. Part of the fun when I was listening to it as the Art Bell, you know, coast to coast AM with Art Bell, he had another program as well. Um, uh, Dreamland, Dreamland, which Whitley Strieber has now taken over. Yeah. So part of the fun of that was that he would sort of descend, maybe not into ridicule, but he, he'd start to kind of poke at people a little bit and prod them for more information. And, and you know, so I felt like he was doing his due diligence. You know, now I look back at it and I think, man, I was a little bit. Uh, Art was still credulous uh, to the most part, but he did say, you know, he doesn't necessarily believe it. And George, to his credit, has said that a few times. And also, to his credit, he has stated that, you know, he'll have me on to debate. He he does bring a few scientists on, you know, Michio Kaku, for example, um, Dan Durda, uh, but it... I do think it's not as much as art, and I think that art was more, at least his style, was more of the counter-argument, whereas George seems to be more, tell me what you think, and not necessarily question it as much. It was, and the only questioning, most questioning, is more along the lines of, talk about that a little bit more, as opposed to, well, but people can't, you know, people don't believe that, you know, why don't they believe it, you know, that kind of thing, or what do your critics say, type of style. Yeah, so, you know, is the correct response to Mike Barrow or Richard Hogan having a soapbox to also give you a soapbox? And my thinking is that that's, it's certainly not the most entertaining approach. Yeah, I mean, I don't think um, if I got on it would, and it was just me, I don't think that would be as entertaining uh, as it would be if I were to debate him. Uh, on the other hand, it does have a 5 to 15 million listener audience. And any chance to say, well, this is what I do, and to try to come off, I, I think I've I come off as a reasonable person, but to try to portray that on air, even if I reach 1%, that's fifty to 15,000 people uh, who will start to have that spark of critical thinking and questioning. And I think that that in itself... Would it would be more than worth spending a few hours getting you know yelled at by Mike if he happens to be on debating, uh, and so I you know I'm I'm willing to take one for the team and do that. And I think that was one of the issues that I was going to raise that if what we do is skippings, it's not just for skippings. It actually goes outside of the room, so it's just, it opens the 
to a broader community. Um, the way we interact in social media, whether it be, for example, uh, I look after things like Facebook, Twitter, and all the other various resources. It's just that there's a further outreach than just those people in this room. And if you can just get, so, um, just get someone to think a bit more, you're not going to... Uh, when I make comments on, for example, the various ghost hunting pages, and I make comments. It's not directed at those who are diehard. Um, yeah, it's people it's, on the fence. Yeah, You're never going to convince those fence. people. Yeah, those are, and the way that I make comments is never, um, never making an homilitated towards a debated issue. And what people will find is that I often get messages from people that are on those pages saying that it's good to see you actually debating the topic at hand rather than attacking the individual, that's all they see. And they can tell from just that language that they're using. Right. And, it, and again, I'll, I'll direct anyone to read my blog yeah. and then read Mike's blog yeah. and see what, you know, yeah. who uses the ad hominems. Ad hominems, yeah. So what it is, one thing, why we're, why we're the group we try to be involved in, things like the, who were your partners, those who were just dragged them off, they don't have they're not one way, one side of the fence or the other, but they're the ones who want something going to change their mind on. So what you've got to remember is when we when we interact with people, it's about it's about the it's about those uh, around the conversation, not necessarily those that are inside the conversation. Yeah, I mean you're never going to convince the fence sitters, or I mean you're the the believers. I try to gear it more towards the fence sitters, or even the people who may believe it but are at least open to listen to someone else and say, oh, well, they don't seem so unreasonable. Maybe I should look a little bit more into this. And I, you know, I've tried to say it throughout this presentation, you know, don't just listen to me, at least for the, the blog stuff, you know, go read it for yourself. The same thing with this stuff. Uh, anything that I've talked about is don't just take my word for it. Go look into it yourself. You typically won't hear the believers say that because if you do start to investigate it yourself, you'll find that they're usually wrong. Um, and, you know, the, just honing critical thinking skills related to anything will then apply to other things. So um, I know in Australia you have a huge thing, although a very recent major win against the AVN. And vaccination is a huge issue here in Australia relative to the United States. And if you start to think critically about the Apollo moon hoax or the lunar ziggurat, those same kinds of skills are, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't just believe everything that... What's her name? Meryl Doherty? Doherty. Okay. And maybe I shouldn't just believe everything that she and the AVN put out. Maybe I should actually start to look at both sides and what the science says. And that has a huge impact on public health. I mean, this... You know, no one's going to get killed for believing in the lunar ziggurat or because of believing in this lunar ziggurat. I mean, there's, I feel almost bad going, you know, because the pseudo-astronomy stuff, and I call it pseudo-astronomy because Phil Plate has bad astronomy. Um, the pseudo-astronomy stuff is not going to typically lead to anyone dying, unlike, for example, vaccination stuff or... Um, Cancer, cancer, yeah. Well, and any of the med the medical stuff is the alternative health. Chiropractic, yeah. Meanwhile, you have. Yeah. Meanwhile, you have 
like uh, what I like to call the psychic vampires, and we just lost a major one, um, Sylvia Brown. You have people like her feeding on people's um, fears and on people's loss and saying, oh, your loved one is in a good place and I'll talk with them and you for an hour and meanwhile pay me $300. Or astrology reading, you know, pay me $400 and you can get an hour and I'll tell you what the stars and planets say when, you know. And there it's not necessarily as much people are going to die because of it, but it's you're losing a lot of money. And, I mean, fortunately, um, I don't how many of you read the Doubtful News blog? Okay, a few of you. Uh, I recommend it if you're at all interested in this kind of stuff. Uh, Sharon Hill puts it out along with one or two other people, and uh, she's been highlighting stories recently about uh, the alleged psychics and them getting arrested in the United States and because you know they milked uh, eighty thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars out of someone, but now they they're finally starting to crack down on it in some places in the U.S. And she's trying to highlight that. And there, it's it's not what the harm is in they died. It's what the harm is in, that was my life savings. And again, any critical thinking or, skill, anything critical thinking. Not just life savings. They make life decisions. That too, told, yeah. But they'll be told, like, they say, that you must do such and such. Or, you, or, you know, should I take this job? Should I move? Right. And there's a Glennis McCants, a numerologist, for example, big on coast to coast. Uh, she tells people, for example, if you have, um, you know, if your numbers are good right now and you're, you're, haven't been married yet, don't take the other person's last name because then your numerology will change and you could become toxic for one another just because you took the other person's last name. I mean, that, it's not as much of a what the harm, but it's kind of like, well, if someone really believes that and then they're making other life decisions based on the numerology, that's a bad thing. Um, in Japan, they make hiring decisions based on astrology, for example. You may or may not get this job based on your astrological chart. It's not just that with a lot of the... Um, it's not just into, uh, the job market, and also the way that companies make decisions. They won't, they won't do certain things because of an associated, whether it's an evil, evil spirit or something. Yeah, and then, of course, we always get the argument from authority. Well, this celebrity believes in astrologers, and uh, Nancy Reagan had her as private astrologer for Ronald Reagan, who made decisions based on this. And Again, you know, logical fallacies can be fun. I don't know if you stop getting Alzheimer's. <laughs> yeah. but, shouldn't laugh. Your knowledge of processing and how long it takes to go through you know, the photographs of what you've done with Mars, and then, you know, you've... The moon is Mars is sort of in between the moon and Earth in size. I'm guessing um, it's actually pretty much exactly in between in terms of surface area and so diameter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so how long would you estimate it would take someone to go through each individual photograph that's been taken on the moon? Can't. You can't. You couldn't do it. No. Not enough man to, to go through. Nope. So, essentially, this is what these guys are reporting. They're saying that someone from NASA, or there's a team of monkeys that have been trained to go through and airbrush every photograph that's ever been taken yeah. of the moon. Yeah, it, it, it cannot be done. And that's actually um, a big problem and a big opportunity in science these days is, I hate to you know, I hate to say when funding people might be listening, I'll cover the mic a little bit, um, we have too much data. I mean, we have so much image data from Mercury, well, not as much Mercury, but from, especially these days, the moon and Mars. We have so much imagery data that there are not enough scientists out there to look at all of them, uh, other than maybe a cursory glance to see that it doesn't look 
there are weird scan line issues. Uh, and, you know, that it downloaded from the spacecraft correctly. There are not enough people to do that. And so you have amateur astronomers, uh, I think some of you are here, um, who are willing to devote their time, um, not necessarily to uh, planetary imagery, but um, there's a huge amateur variable, AVN, I think they, Australian vaccine. Yeah, the variable star. Yeah. Amateur astronomers do a lot with that. Um, there are citizen science projects out there that give images to um, the public to look at and try to find features because we as scientists don't have enough time. But you also have just the amateurs on the Internet doing it, pointing out interesting things. But then you have the ones with the conspiracy twist. And so you have UFO Daily, I think, is a website where they basically, because there are all these images, they just... And they're so big now. I mean, when in Viking, they were... You know, 200, 300 pixels across, the equivalent of that. Nowadays, they're you know, one high-rise image, which is a camera on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which records things at pixels the size of my laptop. Um, one image of that is about a gigabyte in size. These are huge images. And so you have dedicated UFO people pouring over every single rock in a curiosity image and saying, that one looks like a seashell. That one looks like an octopus. That one looks like a squid. That's um, Sir Charles Schultz um, is on Coast to Coast talking about that. You know, He's finding all these fossils in these Mars images. You have people finding the rodent on Mars. You had Richard Hoagland again on Coast to Coast uh, and on Art's very short-lived Dark Matter radio program. Um, you had him saying, well, this is an apartment complex when he's actually identified just a, a sedimentary rock that's about a third of a meter high, um, he's saying those are collapsed apartment complex level floors. And it's just, you have so much data out there that you have all these people pouring over it, you're going to find stuff, especially when pareidolia, whether you believe in the term or not, can be played out. Uh, does that, I think I went a little bit off topic, but does that basically answer your question? Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> but I don't want to monopolize if somebody else has. Um, do you work much with laser optometry? Um, I work with the data, yes. Because I'm curious, like, do we have the tools to get topographic data of, say, uh, things like overhangs, for instance, or can we only get, you know, uh, 90 degrees or shallower angles up there. The laser altimeter specifications, I believe for the ones that have been produced and are flying on, are the one that is flying on the lunar reconnaissance orbiter, the one that is flying on Messenger, which is around uh, Mercury, and the one that did fly on one of the rough, uh, in the year 2000-ish, um, Mars spacecraft, either Mars Orbiter or Mars Global Surveyor. Um, I think the operating specs were pretty much it has to look straight down. Um, I, I mean, you can turn the spacecraft. Um, I don't think they ever really took anything off maybe a few degrees from straight down, though. And you'd have to be looking pretty, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 degrees from um, straight down in order to get an overhang type. So how, how does that... So can, can that, like, color out perspective on geology that's called, like, crazy. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, like, I'm, I'm, yeah. sure, I'm the, really fascinated by the Vallis Marineris, for instance, and in none of the sort of topographic data that you see when you model it, 
you never create overhangs, you never really right. create straight cliffs either, but I, I just, like if I picture it in my head, I see that kind of stuff, so I'm wondering like how, how can we... Um, well, a way to, I mean, you'd, you'd have to figure out how you want to render it, because that's the other thing is that for planetary geology, I mean, at least for the stuff I do, I render it where I'm looking straight down. Um, the way to go about it would probably be you would have to use stereo pairs. Um, by the way, laser altimetry, for those who don't know, is you shoot a laser, you time how long it takes to get back, and you know the speed of light because it doesn't change, and you have um, how far away the thing is. Stereo pairs are the way your eye works. So um, you have a baseline, in this case separation between my two eyes, and you have an object, and the light the object looks slightly different from one eye versus another, and you can reconstruct that different. Your brain does it really well, usually. Uh, I say usually because there are obviously ways to fool it. Um, we can do the same thing with spacecraft. In fact, there's a camera around Mars that was designed to take stereo pair images and build up a topographic map. So, if you were to say, instead of the stereo pairs being taken where you're looking almost straight down, instead do it when the spacecraft is tilted 90, you know, not 90, uh, maybe 80, 70 degrees, and take the stereo pair that way, and then combine it with data taken from above, and create a point cloud of every feature that you can match up between the two, then you might be able to start to reconstruct that kind of... So is that... I don't know of anyone who does that. I don't know of any that are. Um, I could be mistaken. I, you know, it's always possible. I don't know of one, um, but I do not know of any that do that uh, or are planned to do that. After that, we all went down to eat, drink, and make merry. And so with that. That wraps up this topic for the, what is it, 102nd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even send me a tweet to pseudoastro, P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and will usually get back to you within a six-month period. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate the podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and two random people that you might never meet in real life. Or maybe you will. 